Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by Dr. Lamis Elme Abdelati to discuss her new book, Discrimination and Delegation, Explaining State Responses to Refugees, published by Oxford University Press in 2021. States face choices when people forced to leave their states due to persecution or violence seek refuge. They may assert their sovereignty by either granting or denying entry, or they may delegate refugee protection to an international organization. Discrimination and delegation asks, why do states sometimes assert their sovereignty vis-a-vis refugee rights and at other times seemingly cede it? Dr. Abdullahi develops a two-part theoretical framework in which policymakers in refugee-receiving countries weigh international and domestic concerns. At the international level, policymakers consider relations with the refugee-sending country. At the domestic level, policymakers consider political competition among ethnic groups. When these international and domestic incentives conflict, shifting responsibility to the UN allows policymakers to both placate refugee-sending countries and domestic constituencies. In short, foreign policy and ethnic identity shapes state reactions to refugees. Dr. Lamise Abdullahi is an assistant professor of political science at the Maxwell School of Syracuse University and senior research associate at the Campbell Public Affairs Institute. Her interests include international relations, human rights and humanitarianism, and asylum and migration. She has forthcoming research providing a statistical analysis of the relationship between government respect for human rights and How Governments Treat Refugees, coming out in the International Journal of Human Rights. I am so happy to welcome her to New Books in Political Science. Thank you so much for having me. So, Lamise, how did you come to this particular project? What, what drew you to the intersection of IR and state responses to, to refugees? Thank you for that question. Um, I actually got interested in this topic way back in 2007. So before the Syrian refugee crisis, before the so-called European migration crisis of 2015. Um, And what drew my attention to this topic, what really sparked my interest was an article um, published in 2006 by Salahian and Gladic called Refugees and the Spread of Civil War. Uh, And this article is basically about how refugees can be one of the mechanisms for the diffusion of civil conflict across neighboring countries. But as refugees move across borders, they bring with them money, um, they bring ideas, they bring potential recruits that can lead to the spread of civil war. That's what really drew me to to this topic of refugees. But as I started reading uh, some of the literature, I noticed that a lot Um, of the literature on refugees was focused on security, like this article, so refugees as a cause or a consequence of international security, or it was focused on international and regional cooperation on refugees, um, or the lack thereof, the lack of cooperation. Um, I also noticed that refugees were missing from the literature on human rights, which tends to focus on how governments treat their own citizens. So there wasn't a lot of research when I was starting out on the ways that refugees are treated by host um, countries. Um, And that's what got me interested in this topic. It's it's really surprising, actually, that 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 link would not be there, because uh, as you write about it, it seems so, uh, well, first of all, so important, and you direct our lens there, but the idea that there wasn't there is is actually really puzzling to me. Wow. Um, You write that there's enormous cross-national variation in refugee rights. And you use data from the World Refugee Survey and also the letter grades assigned by the U.S. Committee for Refugees and Immigrants uh, regarding 
refoulement, which is the forcible, I learned, return to a country uh, where they will be in danger in physical protection, also detention and access to courts, uh, freedom of moon and residence, and the right to earn a livelihood. Um, and I just want to say that, uh, you know, I listened to a lot of NPR and I was reading your book while I was leading my life. And the book and the way that it defines things, the categories that it creates for somebody who's not in your field, this was so helpful to me. Uh, the book is beautifully written, very clearly organized. But but for me, the the definitions of things, I started listening to the radio differently. And I, I just want to thank you for that part of, for me, of what I've, I've learned. And sometimes people ask me why I do this podcast. And, and it's mostly just to read books that I would never read. And we have so little time and we read the books often that we need for a particular article or research we're doing. But your, your book in this particular moment, uh, um, we're recording at the end of May in 2021, was just so helpful. So thank you. Anyway, those four categories you then show using these really helpful maps, the remarkable variation in how states treat refugees along these four areas. So tell us a little bit about the patterns in variation before we discuss the two puzzles driving the book. Sure. So as, um, as you explained, I, I'm using uh, in this part of the book, I'm relying on data from the U.S. Committee for Refugees and Immigrants. Um, and they used to publish uh, a, a very nice report called the World Refugee Survey. And at some point, they decided to assign report cards to different countries, grading them on their treatment of refugees along the four dimensions uh, that you mentioned. Um, and so in the book, I, I produce a map where I computed a GPA for each country using these letter scores to try to compare um, country performance on refugee treatment. And the map shows that you know, there, there is this very large variation in how countries treat refugees. So, for example, um, the, using data from 2009, which is the last year that uh, USCRI published this World Refugee Survey, you can see that on one end of the spectrum, um, Brazil scores very, very highly um, because it has a very effective asylum system. Refugees uh, have the right to enter the formal labor market, they have access to social services, they have freedom of movement, meaning they're not restricted to camps, they can live wherever they like. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, you have a, a country like Thailand that fares really poorly. Um, uh, of course, the Rohingya refugee crisis is something that's receiving a lot of uh, uh, news coverage now, but it has deeper roots. And even in 2009, there was reporting on how Thailand, for example, was detaining and assaulting uh, Rohingya asylum seekers from Myanmar um, uh, and how it was also treat treating uh, Hmong refugees um, poorly by confining them and forcibly returning them. So you have this very wide variation um, across countries. But as I describe in the book, this variation needs even more unpacking because even though there are these significant differences between countries, there's even more variation within countries. Well, and, and, and unpack it, you do. I mean, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's kind of, it's a book that's very much like nesting dolls in that you, you, you problematize things and then you open up more boxes. It's just terrific. Um, you describe two puzzles uh, and, uh, uh, I often talk to my undergraduates about great book titles and how book titles can really lay out what a book is trying to do. And yours does. So you have two puzzles, one about discrimination and one about delegation. So would, would you briefly lay out the two puzzles that are that are driving the book? Absolutely. Um, so I'll just note that the way that I came to these two puzzles is um, there's a really fantastic book by uh, Catherine Deverne called Making People Illegal. And one of the things that she says in this book is that um, in the face of globalization, migration has become the last bastion of sovereignty. And what she means is that um, as countries have opened up their borders to movements of goods and financial flows, movements of people is where they've put their foot down. Um, and it's true that we do see many governments talking about sovereignty when dealing with refugees. 
Um, but what I show in my book is that countries don't exercise sovereignty consistently. And this is where the two puzzles come in. So the discrimination puzzle is this idea that countries welcome some refugees and treat others poorly. Um, and the one famous example of this is uh, historically the treatment of Cuban versus Haitian refugees in the United States, where Cubans uh, were welcomed with Haitians uh, less so. Um, but there are examples from elsewhere in the world as well. For example, scholars have documented uh, similar dynamics in India and in Costa Rica. Um, so that's the discrimination puzzle. And it doesn't seem to fit with this idea of migration as the last bastion of sovereignty if governments are varying their treatment across refugee groups. The delegation puzzle has to do with the fact that there are a number of countries around the world who will have out, that have outsourced their asylum policies to the UN Refugee Agency or UNHCR. Um, some people or some listeners may be familiar with the fact that governments around the world have essentially outsourced refugee camp management to the UN Refugee Agency. There's also the fact that in various countries around the world, if you were to apply for asylum, your asylum application would be adjudicated not by the government of that country, but by UNHCR. Um, and this is very striking that there are governments around the world that have basically given an international organization the power to determine who gets refugee status and therefore who gets access to all of the rights um, that are associated with that status. And these include countries that we would normally think as, as being very, uh, very protective of their sovereignty. So in 2011, for example, there are 54 countries around the world that had this UNHCR adjudication of asylum applications. And these included countries like China, India, and Saudi Arabia. These are countries that certainly have the resources to conduct this sort of refugee status determination themselves if they wanted to. But they don't, right, in 2011. Um, and so that's the delegation puzzle. And together, the discrimination delegation puzzles um, form the two questions that I'm trying to answer in the course of the book. Uh, before, thank you, that was so clear. Before we talk about, and that's how you write, so this is great. Before we talk about how you solve the puzzles in the book, let's talk about your definition of asylum policy. Um, what is it and how is your definition different from scholars who research refugees and human rights? Thank you for that question. The way that I define asylum policy is I try to define it expansively, meaning it is, of course, important whether or not people who are appearing at the border are granted entry, but that is not the sum total of asylum policy. So I define asylum, asylum policy as all of the measures, the set of measures that are adopted by a government to regulate the entry and the exit and the conditions of residence of asylum seekers and refugees. So this, of course, includes things like whether you allow people at the border to enter the country, but it also includes other aspects, like whether or not a government decides to apply in, in the 1951 Refugee Convention to a group of asylum seekers, whether it allows asylum seekers and refugees freedom of movement or whether it restricts them to camps, whether it returns them to their uh, home countries forcibly, whether it allows them access to the labor market or access to social services, whether long-term refugees have the option of integrating into the host society. Um, and crucially, I define asylum policy as not just the laws that are on the books, but also policies that are applied in practice. And this is important because there's often an implementation gap um, where what's written um, down in the laws may not reflect the actual experiences of refugees. And so I'm interested in both the laws as well as their impl implementation. So the, the, the book uses qualitative and quantitative methods, the, this, the, the central dependent variable being asylum policy. But would you explain a little bit about the type of research you did, where you're pulling this from, how much comes from uh, interviews, how much comes from uh, any sort of on-the-ground research? Sure. So I describe um, my research process in the book as a three-stage, multi-level research design. 
basically what this means is I think of the research as uh, taking place in three steps where each step is meant to provide further support to the one preceding it and to expand the analysis. So the first step that I uh, describe in the book is a cross-country statistical analysis of refugee status. And this statistical analysis is useful because it, it allows me to examine the patterns that might hold across countries and over time, but it's limited in the extent to which it can really get into causal mechanisms um, and the extent to which it can examine other aspects of asylum policy beyond refugee status. And so the second stage um, includes two country-level case studies where I look at Egypt and Turkey as receiving countries for refugees and analyze how it is that they've treated different refugee groups on their territory over time. This uh, is very useful in terms of getting into the mechanisms that determine refugee treatment and is useful in terms of looking at this broader range of asylum policies that I'm interested in. And then in the third stage, I really try to zoom in on the ways that different domestic actors advocate for or against refugees. Um, here, I present a content analysis of parliamentary debates in Kenya and really try to focus my analysis on how legislators who represent different constituencies and also members of the executive are talking about different refugee groups. So I, I see this uh, research as, um, again, uh, providing a more persuasive set of evidence than any single component might. Uh, it, and I loved it. I just want to say that I think that the, the kind of the, again, the opening another door, another door for me worked in, in understanding the different distinctions and then being forced into something more granular. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about your cases. You, you've said a little bit about why you've picked them, but why choose the post-World War II Egypt and Turkey? Um, oh, I should say to everybody who's not read the book, the, the Egypt and Turkey are presented in the post-World War II period, whereas Kenya is presented in the 20th century. Um, why, why these countries in terms of developing versus developed world, and also why post-World War II? That's a great question. Um, so the reason I selected these three countries is I tried to focus my analysis on countries in the global south. And the reason I choose this focus is because most of the literature we have on immigration and asylum policies is focused on Western countries, whereas 85% of the world's refugees reside in the global south. So it was a great of, number, by the way. Like, I, I, I had this moment of, wait, 85%? Really? And so in, in, the, uh, in the book, I attempt to really reorient our focus in this way, um, and I select Egypt and Turkey for the case studies and Kenya for the content analysis, um, in part because they present very different types of receiving countries. So I describe Egypt as a fairly typical refugee recipient in the sense that it has, in the period that I'm examining, a relatively small number of refugees per capita, and it is a signatory to the 1951 Refugee Convention. Turkey, I describe as more of an outlier because it's one of a handful of countries that has what's called a geographical limitation to the Refugee Convention, um, which essentially means that it only recognizes Europeans as refugees as a matter of law. And Kenya is a, considered a crucial case study in the refugee studies literature because it hosts this long-standing and large population of Somali refugees, and it's also home to one of the largest refugee camps in the world. Um, I focus on these three countries. Um, in, the, in the case of Egypt and Turkey, in the post-World War II period, in the case of Kenya post-independence. Um, and the reason I do this is that in 1951, we have the establishment of the modern international refugee regime. And so I try to focus my analysis on the post-1951 um, patterns. Another reason this, uh, the selection of these three countries is neat is because the three countries also 
have a lot of variation in terms of their refugee policies. Um, for example, the extent to which they've adopted camps. Um, and they're also very different in terms of their domestic conditions. They have different regime types. They have different economic conditions. And so by comparing these three countries, if we see similar patterns in, the, in these three very different countries, um, that can lead us to have more confidence in the findings. And also, um, there are some shared refugee groups across these countries. So, for example, there are Sudanese refugees in both Egypt and Kenya. And that allows me to kind of hold the refugee group constant um, in a sense, so that I can compare the treatment of a single refugee group across countries as well. So I want, you know, it's always so hard. It's such a complex book. So how do I make a podcast out of it? I, I want to do, I want to talk about each case. I want to talk about Egypt, Turkey, and Kenya. But before we do that, I want to ask you to do something sort of ridiculous, which is to just kind of say the answers to the questions. So so why do states sometimes assert their sovereignty and sometimes seem to cede it? Like, what, what, are, what are the quick and dirty answers to the discrimination and delegation puzzles in the context of your case studies, but then we'll do it in a more nuanced way with the three of them? So I basically the book argues that, as you summarized so well in the introduction, it argues that states' approaches to refugees are shaped by foreign policy and ethnic policy. And I conceptualize policymakers in receiving countries as responding to sets of incentives that are coming from an international level and a domestic level. At the international level, I show that policymakers in refugee receiving countries are paying attention to bilateral relations with the country that refugees have fled. And in general, when there's hostility between the two countries, I expect to see more inclusive treatment for refugees. From the perspective of policymakers who are receiving refugees, welcoming groups uh, from hostile nations, from rivals, um, can be attractive because it serves as a way to destabilize potentially that sending country. It could be a way to discredit that sending country by saying that people are voting with their feet. Um, it could also form an opportunity to harbor opposition um, that can engage in cross-border attacks. Of course, when relations between the refugee-receiving country and the refugee-sending country are friendly, policymakers in the refugee-receiving country wouldn't want to impose these kinds of costs and so are more likely to shut out refugees. So that's happening at the international level. At the domestic level, I show that policymakers in refugee-receiving countries are paying attention to the identity of refugee groups. And I use the term ethnicity in a very broad sense to capture whichever cleavages are most salient in a given society. So they might be linguistic or racial or religious or what have you. In general, when policymakers um, perceive refugees, incoming refugees, as sharing their identity, they're more likely to be welcoming of them. Um, and it could be because they're pandering to their constituencies' desires. Uh, we know that in general, people tend to sympathize more with those uh, they see as sharing their identity. Or in multi-ethnic society, it could be the policymakers are seeking to improve or preserve the ethnic balance uh, in, the way, in a way that could um, further their political careers. Now, in some cases, these incentives that are coming from the international and the domestic level are going to point in the same direction. So if refugees are coming from a rival state and they share the identity of policymakers in a receiving country, then those policymakers have very strong incentives to welcome those refugees. The flip side, if refugees are coming from a friendly country and they do not share a common identity with policymakers in the receiving country, then it makes sense for those policymakers to shut them out. But there are going to be cases where these incentives point in opposite directions. And I argue in the book that that's when we see countries outsourcing asylum policy to the UN Refugee Agency. And I note that there are various features of UNHCR that make it very well suited for this role. Um, UNHCR is insulated from domestic lobbying. It looks very neutral um, from the perspective of domestic and international audiences. But even so, it's actually very easy to punish. So if governments do delegate to the UN Refugee Agency and then it does something they don't like, it, governments have in the past kicked out UNHCR from their territory altogether. But even short of that, it's fairly easy for governments to just station police officers around UNHCR offices to make sure that asylum seekers are unable to physically access 
um, UN Refugee Agency staff. And UNHCR knows that it only operates in countries' territories with their consent. And so um, it's very cautious about what kinds of critiques it may raise of government's treatment of refugees. Um, I also provide in the book other reasons why UNHCR is, is uh, very useful for this role. But essentially, it's the book's argument is that this combination of incentives coming from foreign policy and ethnic politics really drives and shapes the ways that countries react to refugees. Oh, thanks. That's that was masterful. And and by the way, any 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 quality issues with my introduction are simply your book because all of that is just lifted from your excellent and very clear introduction and and the way you sum up your major findings at the ends of chapters. So so thanks for the compliment, but it's not to me. It's really to your writing. Uh, we have a lot of different kinds of listeners, including undergraduates. So I'll just remind everybody that UNHCR is the office of the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, which again, like has become just an acronym that in a sense rarely gets spelled out, but the, you you also provide a really great list of all of the acronyms. Um, okay, I have to ask you a question that just comes to mind right now. What it's unusual to see a book that, in one way, is so keyed into international relations, take so seriously domestic politics, and that makes me wonder a little bit about your training. And can you say a little bit about? Yeah, how did you end up with such a nuanced understanding of both domestic and international? I mean, no offense to IR people, but that's actually pretty rare. And and I think that's what alienates IR often from the other subfields. And likewise, when people who care about domestic politics pay absolutely no attention to what international forces might be driving uh, uh, domestic politics. So, so, so tell me a little bit about about that, or maybe you got it not from your training, but we're... thank you, thank you for your kind words. Um, so, my, my training is, you know, is within political science has been almost evenly split between international relations and comparative politics. Um, back when I was in my PhD program, my dissertation committee was also evenly sp split between IR and comparative folks. Um, and I think this sort of question, you know, if you're dealing with refugee policy, policies, I don't know that you could really approach it without some combination of perspectives from IR and comparative politics, right? I think it lends itself really well to this type of analysis. And I should note that, of course, this, this, type, of, um, this type of perspective, you know, draws on a, a very long tradition of IR scholars who focused on the influence of international politics on domestic outcomes, um, and also sort of, you know, second image reversed, the influence of domestic politics on international outcomes. Um, so I think I, I am in part speaking uh, to that literature as well. Uh, and apologies, I meant comparative politics earlier, not American politics. So comparativists don't, 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 don't be upset. Um, although send me, I was going to say, don't send hate mail, but nobody sends mail to the podcast. So, um, okay, let's, so that's really, really helpful. That makes so much sense of the book and it makes so much sense of the nuance of the book that, that your training is both, they both come out so beautifully, um, in this book. So that, that's interesting that, that that's something that the graduate students listening to should, should, should think about. I agree. I mean, I think, I, and, you know, it's it's my sense that some of the most interesting research is research that bridges, you know, subfields and, and fields, really, right? Um, and so that's something that I try to do in the book. And it also is related to my methodological approach in the book as well, right? Is that the fact that I com combine statistical work with field work as well as archival research and content analysis. No, agreed. It's, it's, it's I I should have actually been able to figure that out better than I did. Because it, it's true. It's all over the book. It's in the question that you're asking. It's in the answers that you're giving and the methods that you're using to find those answers. L let's talk a little bit about Egypt. Um, 
You explain that it's often thought of, and you mentioned this earlier, as a sort of typical refugee recipient. So very briefly, what's the conventional wisdom about Egypt? How does your research reveal a much more complicated story about discrimination as Egypt approaches Palestinians, Sudanese, Iraqi, and other refugees? Um, and your main takeaways from this case study, like what, what, what does looking at Egypt in this careful way let us understand about the puzzles that you're looking at? So the conventional wisdom about Egypt's, Egypt's asylum policy is that it does not have an asylum policy. So when I um, actually traveled to Cairo and started interviewing people there, um, one of the experts that I interviewed it might have actually been a very, the first interview that I did. Um, the interviewee said, you know, does Egypt even have a refugee policy? Does it even care to develop a refugee policy? Um, and, you know, he went on to say, I, I think the government doesn't really think about refugees very much with the exception of Palestinians. I don't know that um, the Egyptian government even, um, you know, ha has fashioned any consistent set of approaches towards refugees. It's just given... Um, responsibility for refugees to UNHCR, um, the UN Refugee Agency, and doesn't do anything else. Um, but what I show in the chapter is that there are actually very clear patterns in Egypt's responses to refugees. Um, and I compare the ways that Egypt has responded to various refugee groups on its territory, focusing especially on um, Palestinians, Iraqis and Sudanese refugees. Um, and I show that patterns in its responses to these refugee groups, both differences across refugee groups and also shifts over time, these patterns really show um, how foreign policy and ethnic politics are shaping the responses to refugees in Egypt, even though it might seem as though there's an absence of official asylum policy. This is a question that maybe isn't appropriate, but what when you talk about how countries understand like difference, how much of that do you see as constructed? I mean, so, sometimes in the book, there's it, it it it's as if it exists, and sometimes in the book, it's as if no, this is something that they make up and change over time. They decide who is more like them or not like them. They decide who is. Is more other. That's a that's a great question. It's a difficult question. Um, I, I think both of these things are happening, right? I think that ideas about identity are shifting over time, and at the same time, governments are making strategic calculations about whom they're going to cast as uh, someone who's uh, someone who shares a kinship with them and, and others who do not. So, in the book, for example, um, I show how. Um, Iraqi refugees in Egypt, even though they are predominantly Sunni, um, the Egyptian government has um, incentives to not treat them quite as well as, as it has treated other refugee groups. And so it basically tells the Egyptian public that the Iraqi refugees are Shia um, and that they, they might, uh, you know, foment instability or uh, they might be trying to to uh, convert people to, to Shiaism. Right. Um, and so this is a case where the government is uh, essentially deceiving the, pop the public about the identity of refugees in order to try to justify um, their less than generous response, right? So this is a case where there's this sort of strategic manipulation, right? Um, elsewhere, you know, if we think about the uh, more recent responses to Syrian refugees in Turkey, um, which is something that I don't really get into much in the book, even though I, I mention it. Um, we've seen that the current um, government in Turkey, especially the beginnings of the Syrian refugee crisis, um, even though Syrian refugees who were headed to Turkey, the majority, vast majority of them were not ethnically Turkish, um, the Turkish government saw their shared Sunni Muslim identity as um, you know, providing sufficient affinity to warrant a more welcoming approach uh, than it might have otherwise. And I think that has to do with the political orientation of the current government in Turkey and also its um, objectives 
for uh, Turkey's regional role as well as um, domestic politics in Turkey as well. Um, you use Turkey to understand the dynamics of selective production uh, protection among a very wide variety of refugees. And once again, your analysis moves beyond the common explanation for Turkey's asylum policy as grounded in the country's geographical limitations. Uh, how does Turkey further our understanding of refugee politics in the context of both domestic and, and international dynamics? So as I mentioned earlier, Turkey is a really interesting case because, again, it's one of a handful of countries that have this geographical limitation where basically when Turkey, Turkey as a matter of law, does not recognize non-Europeans as refugees. Um, and so most the conventional wisdom on Turkey is that, you know, it's going to treat Europeans well and non-Europeans poorly. But what you see if you really dig into the patterns of how different refugee groups have been treated in Turkey is that there's a much more nuanced um, set of responses to refugees there. And that it, it is not the case that all Europeans are treated well or that all non-Europeans are treated poorly. Um, and instead, the variation between these groups really sort of aligns with my argument about the role of foreign policy and domestic politics. One... Um, contrast that's really interesting um, in the Turkish case is, you know, um, comparing Turkey's responses to Bulgarian and Iraqi refugees. Um, so within the span of just a few years in the late um, 1980s, um, Turkey received very large refugee populations, one, um, about 300,000 people coming from Bulgaria and another tens of thousands coming from Iraq, Iraqi Kurds. Um, now, the differences between these two groups in terms of foreign policy and ethnic politics were quite large. So the Bulgarians um, were ethnically Turkish, um, and they were coming from a country uh, that Turkey had very hostile relations with. And so even though they're, it's a very sizable refugee population coming from Bulgaria, um, Turkey suspends its visa requirements. It provides them with access to housing and employment, you know, the ability to apply for Turkish citizenship and so on. Um, in contrast, you know, again, with, with, within just a, a couple of years of each other, um, when Turkey receives uh, refugees from Iraq, these are predominantly Kurdish refugees who are fleeing Saddam's uh, Al-Anfal campaign. Um, Turkey responds very differently to these refugees. They are, of course, ethnically Kurdish, um, and Turkey has a friendly relationship with Iraq at the time. And so it restricts these refugees to heavily guarded, closely monitored camps, and it rejects offers of international assistance. So even though these are two groups that are, uh, you know, minority groups in their home countries that are fleeing massive human rights violations, we see this very divergent response by Turkey, where it actually welcomes the much larger refugee group. Um, there are also interesting dynamics when it comes to delegation in Turkey as well. Um, I discuss in, the, in that chapter how it is that Turkey fashioned its responses to refugees uh, from Bosnia and Kosovo. Um, that when uh, in the early to mid-1990s, when Turkey received, for example, um, Bosnian Kosovar refugees, um, Turkish policymakers seemed to perceive that there was no uh, ethnic tie with these refugees. They were also coming from a rival state. Um, and so what Turkey does is it does not treat these refugees as well as it did the Bulgarians and also not as poorly as it did the Iraqis. Instead, it designates them as guests. It allows them to reside in urban areas, and then it relies on assistance from UNHCR. So it kind of fits into my argument um, about when it is that we would expect delegation to occur. I also found in the archives, by the way, in the archives um, related to Turkey, um, these are UNHCR archives that I was looking at. Um, I found a very striking um, internal memo from UNHCR officials in Turkey talking about how they had stopped using the words mandate and refugee in their discussions with Turkish officials because uh, these terms have had led to a negative response previously. Um, and it was very striking to me that 
the UN Refugee Agency would stop using the term refugee and <laughs> its interactions with the government. But it really goes to um, emphasize, you know, my argument about the ways in which even though governments may delegate to UNHCR, UNHCR is still very much constrained and really uh, will self-censor to ensure that it remains in the good graces of, gov- of governmental authorities. It's a great story. Must have been a great archival moment. There's nothing, nothing like sitting and finding that kind of a memo. Uh, the third case study, Kenya, takes us out of this post-World War II international context As you mentioned earlier, Kenya has hosted one of the largest refugee populations, over 400,000 refugees in 2019. And again, as you mentioned earlier, you know, it was home to one of the biggest refugee camps in the world. And third generation refugees from Somalia were were living in the refugee complex. Uh, So given the centrality of Kenya for refugee studies, you include it, but you have a different analysis than previous scholars. Um, Explain a little bit again about the difference and also, you know, what's learned by looking at Kenya with regard to discrimination and delegation. Thank you for that. Um, So Kenya, because it is considered such an important case in refugee studies, is a country where a lot of people have done research. And there, you know, there are a lot of publications about um, changes in Kenyan policies over time. And so I didn't really, in the book, I didn't want to replicate that kind of analysis. And so instead, um, what I do is I provide this content analysis of the Kenyan parliamentary archives. And basically what I did is I gathered up the full text of the parliamentary record in Kenya from 1963 to 2010. And I looked for every mention of the words asylum, refugee, or the Swahili root word kimbi. Um, and using, uh, using this technique, I was able to locate every single time that anyone <laughs> speaking in the Kenyan parliament spoke about asylum seekers and refugees. Um, and I try to analyze this evidence in the chapter, both qualitatively and quantitatively. Um, and what, what I show is that there are very interesting differences in terms of what is being said, depending on whether the person who's delivering the statement is a legislator or a a member of the executive, um, especially someone who uh, belongs to the foreign policy uh, community. Um, I also show that there are divergences uh, between legislators, depending on which constituency they represent. So for, for example, you know, I provide examples where um, uh, someone who represents a predominantly ethnically Somali constituency will speak up uh, against xenophobia, against uh, xenophobia towards Somali refugees. Meanwhile, someone who uh, represents a predominantly ethnically Turkana constituency will uh, display a very different attitude towards Somali refugees, essentially concerned that um, his constituency is uh, becoming a place where refugees from all over the world are about to outnumber uh, the ethnic Turkana. Um, I also examine in this chapter references to UNHCR in the Kenyan parliament, and I show how it is that various legislators genuinely seem to believe that it's UNHCR that is calling the shots on refugees in Kenya, when in fact there's a ton of archival evidence that shows that UNHCR is, again, extremely limited and very much constrained in what it's able to do, and that it's very responsive to um, directives that come down from the Kenyan government. I loved the Kenya chapter. I mean, I, I love the book overall, but there were things in the Kenya chapter which were kind of jaw-dropping. And um, I'm glad that you mentioned some some of the things that, that, that you were able to find. So when we write a book, uh, we have to hand it over to Oxford University Press at some point, and then the world just keeps moving. And I'm, I'm wondering, since you handed in the manuscript and the book is in print, Uh, how you've been looking at refugee issues around the world and and the extent to which you feel like the findings in the book have been either complemented, challenged, enhanced by by what you're you're seeing 
today? Thank you for that question. So one thing that um, I don't really address in a lot of detail in the book is the Syrian refugee crisis, right? Which is obviously, um, I think, something that's um, very much on uh, many people's radar today and has also spawned a lot of new research projects and has, uh, I think, uh, garnered a lot of attention amongst both scholars and, and obviously people in the policy and advocacy communities as well. Um, in the book, I actually argue that, you know, even though I, I'm not looking at the Syrian refugee crisis, it's still important for us to uh, examine treatment of other refugee groups, um, in part because it helps us explain um, how underlying factors and patterns can continue to shape responses to refugee groups, um, but also because some of these refugee groups that I'm talking about in the book continue to be displaced, right? There continue to be Palestinian refugees and Sudanian refugees and Iraqi refugees, et cetera, um, Somali refugees and so on, right? Um, what I do consider briefly in the book is whether, um, you know, whether the, the framework that I've proposed does a good job explaining responses to the Syrian refugee crisis, especially in the two cases um, the two relevant cases that I, that I talk about in the book, uh, Egypt and Turkey. Um, and it seems, and, you know, I haven't done uh, rigorous analysis of this. Obviously, this is relying mostly on secondary sources. But it, it seems as though um, my framework does, to a large part, explain um, how it is that Egypt and Turkey have responded to Syrian refugees, right? So um, in Egypt, for example, we saw with the leadership change in that country from um, Morsi to Sisi, we saw a shift in how Syrian refugees were treated. So um, under Morsi, um, you know, Syrian refugees were welcome. There was no visa that was required. They had access to healthcare and education, etc. Um, under Sisi, a lot of these uh, rights were reversed, and you know, suddenly a security clearance was required for Syrian refugees. They were subjected to detention, and deportation, and this seems consistent with uh, a shift in support. Um, by the Egyptian government from, um, so the Egyptian government used to, under Morsi was very supportive of the Syrian opposition. Under Sisi, they shifted their support to Assad's regime. And this shift in bilateral relations, um, you know, seems to account at least in part for the, the changing fortunes of Syrian refugees in Egypt. Um, in Turkey, as I mentioned earlier, um, you know, Turkey initially adopted this uh, relatively generous stance towards Syrian refugees, um, you know, admitted uh, about 3.6 million, I think, Syrian refugees and allowed them to live outside camps and uh, limited UNHCR's involvement with the Syrian refugees. In fact, um, when I was doing interviews in Turkey, UNHCR, uh, some UNHCR people were complaining to me that they didn't know what was going on in the camps. The Turkish government wasn't allowing them. Uh, into the camps to observe how Syrians are being treated. Um, but, you know, this, this relatively welcoming stance and the limited UNHCR involvement is, as I, as I said earlier, consistent with um, the AKP's anti-Assad stance um, and also with its affinity with Sunni Muslim Syrians. Um, so, you know, the, these dynamics seem to be consistent with my book. Um, I, I think one thing that I often get asked about is whether my framework would help explain European responses to the 2015 refugee crisis. And that's not something that I've looked at in detail, to be honest. Um, but usually my response is that it may or it may not. But if it does not, you know, if my framework does not explain Germany's responses to uh, Syrian refugees, say, um, I think it, it, it may, but even if it does not, I'm actually okay with that because, again, my focus in the book is on providing a framework that will help us understand refugee treatment in those countries where the vast majority of the world's refugees live. And so if, if my framework doesn't apply as well to European countries, that's okay because that's not where most of the world's refugees live, even though that's where most of our media coverage and most of our attention is focused. And really, 85% isn't even a majority. It's, it's, it's way closer to explaining almost all of the refugee issues that we have. And, and that, that number is so stark. And it's great 
how you place it early and kind of reorient us because I think it makes people like me who don't know that number offhand really understand the importance of thinking about these three cases and all the others that are implicated. Um, what are you working on now? This book is is out. Congratulations. Although I know it's hard to promote the book uh, during the pandemic. So um, I hope going forward, you'll have lots of opportunities to share this amazing work with others. But what, what are you on to? What are you on to now? Um, thank you for asking. Uh, so I'm going to maintain my focus on refugees. Um, and what I'm interested for my next book length project is thinking about refugee crises. Um, one of the things that I'm interested in doing for this next book is, again, trying to reorient our focus um, where when we talk about a refugee crisis, I believe we should be talking about it as a crisis for refugees rather than a crisis for receiving countries. Um, you know, when we talk about um, a situation constituting a refugee crisis, you know, for example, in the case of the Syrian civil war, surely the first order crisis is for Syrians and for Syria rather than for say, Europe or the United States, um, you know, countries that really have not even borne the brunt of uh, the, the Syrian refugee crisis. Um, so I'm interested in reorienting our focus in this way, and I'm interested in examining um, the implications of uh, categorizing a certain situation as a refugee crisis, right? What does that do to the ways that international and non-governmental organizations respond to a particular situation? Um, and are there different consequences that are associated with the situations that we designate as a crisis as opposed to others that we do not? Well, I just want to say, Lamise, thank you so much for joining us today. I really enjoyed this book. As I said earlier, you know, being pushed to read books that I wouldn't just pick up because they're not directly related to my research is just such a privilege. And this is clearly written so captivating and so relevant and important. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. The book is Dr. Lamise Elmi Abdullahi's Discrimination and Delegation, Explaining State Responses to Refugees, published by Oxford University Press in 2021. Thanks so much. 